Hi, I'm Karin Kusama, and thanks so much for listening to the commentary of Destroyer. These opening images are actually light leaks. Uh, we essentially decided to shoot the opening of the film in the most lo-fi way possible, which was to take the lens off of the camera and just allow light to leak in if we covered it with our hands. And so what it helped create is the sense of orange light entering a black frame, almost mimicking the sense of sunlight behind your eyelids because we didn't really have the uh, opportunity to to actually create what that might look like, but this is our evocation of it. My cinematographer, Julie Kirkwood, and myself really wanted something this kind of evocative and spontaneous feeling, and so we just decided to go with the most basic and simple approach possible. We also wanted to start, I wanted to start the film with music that set us in into the instrumentation of the score, which is going to build and evolve over the course of the film. And so when we first introduced Aaron Bell, I think it was it was nice to sort of have this um, snaky, mysterious strings sound set up. This was one of those shots as I'm watching Nicole Kidman walk away from the camera that really helped me understand the character, her walk, her size, the sense of um, a kind of broken cowboy approaching the modern world. And this particular location, the L.A. River, was a, was a particularly potent spot, I think, to introduce these ideas, nature coming up against concrete, and the sounds of traffic and the sounds of trains and electrical towers. And all of that felt really like L.A. to me. Um, this location was particularly interesting because every time we would scout it, there'd be a new amazing-looking bird that would land down on one of those rocks in the river, a heron, a crane, We'd see turtles, we'd see carp, we'd see so many interesting animals living truly alongside the trash. And uh, not to mention people there who were bathing and washing their clothes in the river. So it felt like a great place to start the film because it has so much life to it, despite incredibly challenging circumstances. This is one of the opening images of the film, obviously, that is meant to pique the audience's interest and create a question about that stained bill, about this tattoo on the back of this murder victim's neck. And I think we're meant to feel Nicole's, Aaron Bell's agitation, the sense of weight on her, burden, on her. This is also a shot that is one of the first that introduces these pink flares that Julie Kirkwood and I were hoping to thread through the film. Uh, as I was prepping the film, a color scheme that kept coming up for me, even though I resisted it, was 
adding pink into this concrete landscape. And so we started working with lenses that would allow for those kind of flares. And uh, it ends up being a really consistent visual motif throughout the film. I loved working with Julie Kirkwood and one of the things I loved was her framing. She has an incredibly sophisticated sense of framing. And so all of that stuff under the bridge to me has a really nice, clean feel with that kind of, uh, that kind of use of the frame. I love seeing Aaron Bell <laughs> as this disgruntled, somewhat disrespected, somewhat misunderstood character at her job, which clearly occupies a lot of her time. And in this moment when she's receiving this stained bill, it was really nice to be seeing her through multiple surfaces. So we used a lot of glass. We used this wire kind of fencing material to just create a sense of her entrapment, a sense of forces closing in on her visually alongside music that is taking on a kind of operatic quality. And I think that was something that Teddy Shapiro, the composer, and I talked about a lot was this idea of the grandness of one person's life, the grandness of one person's journey, and the potential for tragedy in one mistake. A lot of the locations that we looked at downtown to find this precinct for Aaron Bell were much older precincts, and so they had things like the mural that was made out of tile. They had a more of a 60s, 70s feel. And of course, we're very close to, in LA, an area called Skid Row. So it gave it gave the film, uh, I want to say, an authenticity that we were looking for. That tattoo that we just looked at, or the remnant of it, took a long time for us to perfect. And it was the kind of the kind of detail within the script that needed to be there and needed to be both present and subtle. And I think that's a, a demand of the whole film, actually, when I think about it, that we need to understand all the strains, particularly on second viewing, but but at the very least we need to to note a presence or or, or note a, a question or an issue being raised. This was actually our first day of shooting this scene with Gil Lawson and Aaron Bell. Uh, I hadn't worked with Nicole yet, and this was our first day together on set. I had worked many times with Toby Huss on a TV show called Halt and Catch Fire, and as well as on my last film, The Invitation. So I felt really comfortable with him, and I felt like that was a nice way to introduce some of my acting clan to Nicole. Uh, also in the film is Scoot McNary, and I've worked with him many times through Halt and Catch Fire as well. So I was excited to put Nicole and Scoot together. What's nice to me about this scene and, and about her performance particularly is the uh, the intensity, the, the, the obsession that's already starting to come through. And 
it helped me on that first day to see how quickly Nicole immersed herself into into this role. You know, she's such a different person than Nicole herself. And so it was um, gratifying to see right away that she was tapped into a frequency that was uh, very special, very unique, particularly in movies. I feel like I see and deal with women who aren't so far from this woman, driven, regretful, obsessed, intense, lonely, isolated. All of these things define Aaron Bell. And I feel a tremendous amount of sympathy and empathy with her. And so the overall hope of the film as we were making it was that we would study her, the camera would study her, and study her journey to, to track down the, eventually, the leader, we learn, of this crime gang. But that the visual strategy is that we're hanging on her face quite a bit and giving the audience access to her. A moment like that is coming up right now. And this became the strategy into the flashbacks, largely. It was her face combined with an off-screen line that then segued right, right into the past. The idea was that the past and the present aren't that different from each other for Aaron Bell, that it's, it's a continuum, that she lives in this sort of purgatorial netherworld between past and present, and memory has entrapped her to some degree and regret and guilt and shame. And so my hope was that even the look of the flashbacks wasn't too markedly different, perhaps a bit warmer given some of the locations, perhaps including a little bit different color palette, but for the most part living in the same world as the rest of the film. Working with Sebastian Stan, who plays Chris, was just one of those lovely revelatory experiences where I felt like I got to see an actor show me something I hadn't seen of him before. It was such a pleasure. I always knew that I wanted to use Dire Straits somehow in the film, given that it's referenced in the script. And there were a bunch of different songs we continued to try throughout the cut, but this was the one that, that really... Um, stuck with us. Uh, the title is The Man's Too Strong. And when you hear the words, you realize that it's almost a, a portrait of Aaron Bell's interior world. Turn that shit down so we can talk. It was really interesting to shoot this scene. This actor actually comes from a wrestling family. He is distantly related to Dwayne Johnson. And a lot of his family are wrestlers. And so Joseph Fatu came in and I wanted somebody who felt Polynesian. And he was such a natural. He had such an incredible uh, looseness, spontaneity. And even Nicole just, I think, felt like he, he helped create a, a window into 
into the world of the film because he just wasn't a character you see very often in movies. One of my favorite lines in the movie is, well, that's like, for, you know, fucking circular. <laughs> um, and what I love about that line is that it relates back to the overall picture of, of, of the script, the mission of the script, which was to explore circularity, explore time, and uh, explore our assumptions about the linear progression of things which is a big part of the movie. It's toggling between past and present, and it's demanding that the audience do quite a bit of work, actually, to stay present in her headspace, which isn't always moving chronologically forward. So this idea of circularity is something that we keep returning to in the film structurally and visually. So we enter into another flashback here, and it's the first indication that there'll there'll be some kind of romantic intrigue between the two characters. And this is something about the film that I, I really appreciate, that it's operating within certain certain traditions in movies, romance, danger, crime, investigation, that that audiences just feel safe with. And so a scene like this to me that establishes that there's some chemistry between these two characters and opens up that question between them, uh, could they ever be in a relationship? That's the kind of scene that just gives, in my opinion, pure movie pleasure. It's interesting to watch this scene getting all of this footage, all of the footage driving out to Palm Springs, all of these overpasses and uh, windmills really took some doing. Um, our, our budget was fairly aggressive, so any second unit day was precious, and we just managed to get some really beautiful footage of driving out to the desert that could complement all of this work here with Nicole as she was driving. And here we are again into the past, introducing Gil Lawson as a younger man and seeing the origins of this mission. I like the idea that we're seeing Aaron Bell in various, not disguises, but identities, you know, as a sheriff, as a, as a, a person working in, in, in law enforcement in the previous bar scene, now as her more scrappy desert rat self, which I actually think is on a character level more aligned with who she's meant to be, um, who she really identifies with. And then eventually, of course, her, her present day self, who is uh, so clearly broken by the past. This was one of those scenes shooting in this desert diner that gave me a sense that the flashbacks were going to work. There was just a looseness between everyone, a spontaneity, even though they were saying every word, uh, you know, word for word of the script. They just made it all feel really real. And so these more impressionistic scenes like this desert party, I hope could take on a kind of... Um, 
strange mythic quality, you know, like um, entering an underworld or entering some kind of new new world that they have to now find mirrors of themselves or find a way to fit in. And I think the irony of both characters, Chris and Aaron, is that they do fit in. And that's perhaps the biggest issue for them as characters, the biggest conflict for them being undercover is is that they do fit in to this criminal underworld. They feel more comfortable with it. This was a scene that it was very important to me that we work with a visual idea that I had been thinking a lot about, which was pattern on pattern on pattern. And so if you look at the visual backdrop of the, the this location, we just packed on various kinds of pattern. I think I wanted Aaron Bell to feel a little bit lost in the patterns, if that were possible. I also think it looks real and a bit old-fashioned or stuck in time, and I think that's always interesting to see with a modern context. This actor, James Jordan, was just such a um, just such a gem. He makes every line uh, have the possibility for humor, even when it's extremely grim. And he's um, he's just such a lovely, lovely guy to work with. I think he and Nicole had a really special, special kinship as actors who are so open to try all kinds of things. They're just, ex they, they experiment, they take risks, they aren't afraid to go too far. I love those kind of actors that are never afraid of being foolish. That to me is the sign of a great, great actor. I love the the lighting of this scene. I love the the tension of it and the sense that we're really now meeting the the present day remains of this gang. And the lightness is gone. The wildness, the recklessness is pretty much gone. And now we're just seeing people who are broken. We're not quite sure why at this point in the film. But there's a quality that time has done a number on all of these characters and everyone keeps commenting on it to each other essentially that that no one looks recognizable anymore that's really interesting to me i think this movie offered me the opportunity to tell what i would consider an epic story of an incredibly rich complicated main character and then introduce a world around her that was just as complicated and rich and recognizable, I hope. I think a part of what I like about this movie so much and this what I loved about the script from the beginning was the sense that this felt like the real world. And there was a smallness to characters that while often we hope for something different out of our movie characters, I think there can be something bracing and thrilling about watching characters be as small sometimes as we as humans can be. And, and that has to happen sometimes in movies. This is a moment that makes the case. <laughs> um, this is an uncomfortable scene. Everyone going into it knew that it would be, but I felt like it was 
crucial that it not have a sense of exploitation, but actually a sense of deep tragedy that here is a man who who laments the fact that the last person who might ever touch him in his short life will be his mother. And he's just desperate for some kind of connection. She's just desperate to get information. And so the transactional quality of this scene, the uh, lack of, I want to say victimhood in any way, makes it very interesting to me. And it was very interesting to shoot. Um, the characters have such a lack of apology and don't engender a huge amount of sympathy, which I think is interesting. But the actors, every take, really just committed to the grimness, the bleakness, the emotional desert of this scene. And then gave, I think, these interesting emotional shades to the scene, you know, to see James Jordan practically shed a tear and to see the disturbance in Aaron's eyes. I thought it was really moving actually to be to be shooting this scene. It's funny when I watch this scene now and I look at the design of it, it really does remind me of the movies that inspired us as we were working. Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi, the writers, and I love to talk about Clute or Serpico or Dog Day Afternoon or The Parallax View. And these movies of the 70s just have very rich palettes, I think. And also, of course, we're all shot on film. And so film takes on its own kind of uh, mysterious patina. And I think I was really hoping to evoke some of that in this film, despite the fact that we shot with the Alexa. We we did decide to uh, do that, but I think it was important that it feel like film. This little grace note of the owl is one of those moments that I appreciate so much in the script that just has a sense of um, the details. Phil and Matt are really, really good at finding the details of a world and giving me the space then to amplify those details or explore them further. And so with a very spare style, a very lean style, they never overwrite or overdo it. They just set the stage. And so this was the kind of scene, this upcoming scene that we're watching right now, um, the flashback that just... It helps set the stage for what was psychologically at stake. We're watching a bunch of people who are bonded, who are also probably drunk or wasted somehow a lot of the time, with, I would think, the exception of Silas, who we're looking at right now. And that's the control he can have over all of these people, a sense of just terrifying sobriety. And meanwhile, everyone around him is getting lost and enjoying themselves until he decides to shake things up when he feels threatened or he feels small, which I'm going to guess is a lot of the time. Uh, Toby Kebbell, who plays Silas, did such a beautiful job of being the uncharitable version of Silas, the 
truly sort of reptilian version of Silas. He wasn't looking to romanticize him or make him a mastermind genius. He knew that for Silas to actually crawl into Aaron Bell's psyche, he had to have a a humanness that is very unremarkable, which I think actually is a mirror back to Aaron. Something I kept saying to Nicole as we were shooting was each character that you as Aaron meet across LA and back into the past serves as a mirror back to you. And that includes your daughter, that includes the character of Silas, that includes the character of Petra, who we meet more substantially later. Everyone is a version of who you could be, who you are, who you were. And so Silas and Nicole, Silas and Aaron have this uh, thread between them of hunger, of the desire for power, the desire to over overpower, overwhelm, the desire to control. And so as much as Aaron's repelled by Silas, she's also identifying to some degree with him or aligned somehow with him psychologically. And this is a scene in which he exhibits his control over people. And we really see how terrifying it is because it's really about just uh, psychological warfare. It's not really a blatant threat. It's just taking a person's vulnerability and digging into that vulnerability which is exactly what he does here with Arturo. Um, this was one of those scenes that we had almost a whole day to shoot. It's quite long. It's about six minutes or maybe even a little longer. And it was important that we get it right. It was important that we have a sense of the space and a sense of everybody's relationship to one another and a sense of access to all of the characters, particularly Chris and Aaron as as the tone of it escalates and as the suspense and danger of it escalates. So it's one of these scenes that I hope looks like we just understand how it all came together, but on a technical level, it was actually pretty tough to execute in the time that we had. And uh, I'm so happy that I was working with actors who are just so good that this kind of challenge wasn't daunting ultimately because everybody just stepped up. Everybody did great work and everybody gave me so much to choose from and so much to work with that I could have I could have designed the scene to be Toby's scene. I could have designed the scene to be Silas's scene entirely or Chris's scene entirely. And so or even even Petra's. So that kind of um level of actor that I was privileged enough to work with uh, really made made it possible, I think, for me to work with that aggressive schedule. We only had 33 days to shoot. So to me, having actors who are just showing up prepared, thoughtful, and and ready to experiment is the only way something like this can really work. Sorry. This was a scene that sadly lost a couple of 
cool elements, which included her trying to reach out to a random guy at the bar and just make a connection. And it was one of the rare times we see her doing something like that. But it was interesting to recognize how important it was to keep her distilled as a character. It was harder, I think, to allow for too many story threads around her. And so as we were cutting the film, we found we really needed to make it primarily on an emotional level about this relationship that we're seeing right now between Aaron Bell and her daughter, Shelby. And so what that meant was we introduced the daughter, Shelby, a little bit earlier on a story level. And we we basically stripped away a few relationships that might have given her life a bit more dimension for the viewer, but then took us away from the central thrust of this relationship between her and Shelby and the encroachment and the danger of this character, Jay, played by Bo Knapp. And between Bo and then Jade Pettyjohn, who plays Shelby, we just had this kind of lovely triangle, loaded triangle between them emotionally. The idea of the older guy, the 25-year-old guy who's going out with a 16-year-old, it's not uncommon, but it's also really unsavory. And so it's one of those moments that allows the audience access to Aaron Bell, you know, to see that she is actually a parent who cares, despite the the ways she messes that up, despite the fact that she shows up drunk to the bar to hunt down her daughter and then drives home drunk, as she does in this scene. And we learn, we get a second reminder that her partner is wondering where she's been for the past couple of days as she's been on this quest. We see how her life so easily can fall apart. And I think that that's how a lot of people live. But we just, uh, we just don't get to explore that as much in movies as as I think I would like. And the fact that she's so on the edge of, of professional collapse or personal collapse doesn't feel so far away from how many of us have found ourselves living. And I sympathize with that. People have responded in so many different ways to the character and sometimes see her as, as difficult or intractable I just find her relatable personally, which maybe says something about me, but I I like how she's had to find strength in the weirdest ways, and I identify with that, I think. Where? A bar. This is an interesting scene for me because it introduces the idea that she might have once tried to have a functional relationship and can't seem to pull it off. Scoot McNary, who plays Ethan, is probably one of the few truly honorable characters in the film. He's somebody that, if it were his movie, I think we'd, we'd root for him. And so it's interesting to see that she could have gone down a path of being partnered with a, a person like this and it hasn't worked 
And so on the one hand, this is just a conversation between exes about the kid that they share. But on the other hand, I think it's particularly on second viewing, it's interesting to see that she did try to forge a, a relationship with somebody um, within these 16, 17 years since we've been having access to the flashbacks. This was a Chinese restaurant in Chinatown. I, I believe it's called the oldest Chinese restaurant in Chinatown. And it has a sign or a plaque to tell us that outside. And uh, it had this great sickly yellow tile everywhere, which I thought was kind of a nice contrast to the punishing white sunlight that uh, marks so much of the lighting of the, the daytime exteriors. And then the pink tables just felt like a back to that introduction of all the pink, like a nice contrast to that sort of pale, pale yellow. This is just one of those scenes that to me is both about her inability to keep it together, but also her power and her potency as a character. To watch her simmer in the presence of Jay and take his needling and needling and needling and his little comments and, and attempt to be the better person, attempt to rise above, attempt to be the grown-up. Um, it's just interesting to me because I really identify with where this scene is headed, which is the explosion. <laughs> I personally never go there or almost never go there, but I love characters who do. I feel like when you see a woman who just cannot contain her rage, even if we have to watch the consequence of her driving away someone she loves, there is a kind of cinematic satisfaction in watching a character who's a little bit out of control. And I just think it's exciting to see that kind of person on screen, but particularly see this woman on screen and see Nicole playing this role. There's something very different about Aaron Bell from anything else Nicole has done. And she inhabited the secrecy and the loneliness and the rage of the character so deeply that it was um, spooky at times. There were, there were times when I would look at her on set, she wouldn't be on her phone, she wouldn't be chatting with anyone, she would just be sitting in her chair and it was like there was a force field around her of Aaron Bell. And that's an incredible kind of magic to be able to work with people who, who summon other energies, other narratives into the room. You know, we were all able to be in the presence of a great artist summoning that energy. And I hope we were able to tell a better story and make a better movie because of it. You know, she's always... She's always trying things as an actor. And so like in this scene, for instance, we talked a lot about the nature of performance and that she's someone who lies really effortlessly. And we need to see how easy it is for her to slip into this narrative of, you know, being a mom with a nanny that she's desperate to keep particularly watching it the, the second time or multiple times, I find that lie 
kind of funny. Like it, it's, um, it's so incongruous to who Aaron Bell actually is. The idea of Aaron with a nanny, um, <laughs> I don't know why. It just, it tickles me. And so this, this whole scene of seeing her perform an upstanding citizen is kind of interesting to me. This is a moment where we introduce a transitional element that I liked using, which was a straight-ahead close-up of a character looking directly into the camera. And so we see Arturo as an older man here in this church, but then we get somewhat heightened, expressive access to who he was 17 years prior when he was playing a cool kind of bad kid, I suppose, and wearing the wearing the jewelry of that, I suppose, just the trappings of it. This was a scene that was really difficult to figure out how we were going to pull off. Um, we had to have a sense of escalating height, literally, because the way this scene uh, resolves is up high on a hill that then eventually has a view that tells us they've cl they've climbed quite a bit. And so we found a spot in Echo Park that actually did allow for the sense of stairwells and um, hills. And then we found an incredible location that is actually an abandoned park that miraculously had exactly what we were looking for from the script, which was downtown LA in the background and Dodger Stadium across from it. So we get two different two different backgrounds for these characters. And it was such a joy to work with a location manager who would read the script and have the same sense of I want to say almost obsession towards towards finding the same thing I wanted to find, you know, new corners of Los Angeles that allowed for just new access, I guess, to the city, a city we both really love. Robert Folks, the the location manager, just tirelessly drove around Los Angeles and sometimes I would be in the car with him looking for these spots. And when he found this little strip of, of, of parkland high up on a hill, it really was a find. And, it, you know, it was one of those things where I hope Phil and Matt felt vindicated because they hadn't been here yet to, to know that it existed, but they felt like it had to. There had to be a spot, a spit of land where you could look out at the city and then also see Dodger Stadium. As we were shooting, we happened to be entering the postseason of Dodgers baseball. And so we were actually able to film Dodger Stadium filled with cars in a playoff game, which is just not something that happens very often that you can really use the the timing of your shoot to your advantage like this. Um, I was super thankful because 
this was one of those important moments where they look out at Dodger Stadium and we've been hearing the sound of a game and now it all comes together as they stare out at the stadium and hear the cheers from from the crowd. This was a very hard transition. I, I meant for it to be kind of coming out of a hard sound transition into a somewhat startling visual transla- uh, transition of the, the kind of blue into sunlight. And this whole sequence is an example, I would say, of how productions need to think on their feet. It was meant to be obviously one continuous scene, yet we had to shoot it over two days, given its length and given the demands of it. And so one of those days was pouring rain, nonstop pouring rain. And so we had to reconceive the whole scene and bring it indoors, which is what we're doing here, and pray that the the rain wasn't so loud that uh, it would interfere with our eventual sound mix. And move the action essentially through the house and then back outside where we could achieve the rest of the scene on our second day, which we were told was going to be sunny, and thank God it was. Um, if, it, if both had been rainy days, it would, have, it would have such a different feel. It's funny to even have to think about it. But it ended up being – it ended up kind of being the right thing. I think it's nice to see this – this beige interior that's meant to be tasteful and fancy, but ultimately just feels kind of depressing. And there's something just so sublime about Bradley Whitford having so much fun playing such a creep. He's so good at just committing to the logic of a person who sees everything as a food chain and and imagines his whole life as just trying to get to the top and move past move, move past those minnows and move past all of the life forms that he feels don't deserve to ascend. And it's a brutal logic, but he actually has moments where he says stuff that sounds somewhat reasonable or might even make some sense. And so that's what I thought was interesting about this character. He's unlikable, but then also kind of funny. He enjoys being villainous. He enjoys being the heavy. And then when it all comes down to it, he's just as afraid and vulnerable as everyone. So filming this was um, kind of a joy to, to, to be working again with another actor who just shows up, is so prepared and is so dialed in to who this character is. I think Nicole and Bradley might have worked together years and years ago, but they just had so much fun while they were working. And I think that Nicole was sort of genuinely startling to to, to Bradley. I think he, you know, when she showed up, he was like, oh, wow, okay. Big transition from big, you know, big transformation from the Nicole that, you know, he had seen in the makeup trailer, you know, hours before. So they had a really interesting, testy chemistry, I thought, which I loved to be in the presence of. Big fucking house is on 
this scene is to me the first of a few where we really see we see Aaron going through the trial, the physical trial that marks a large part of the spine of the movie. And um, I've talked about it with Phil and Matt, this idea that she she's a character who gets kicked and keeps keeps getting up. And um, this is the first of one of those scenes where we see her face terrible adversity and then um, get up again. And I have to say there's something about that in her that I really relate to as well, just on a character level, on, a, on the kind of the myth level, the thing we're looking for from great characters is that extraordinary moment where the fight comes back to her and and in some ways it's because she's been so beaten down that the fight is so present. How did she think this was gonna go? It's hard not for me to relate to her in that regard. It's hard, I guess. It's unpleasant to watch this character be so abused and yet there is something really powerful about that look in her eyes right now where it looks like she could still go at him. I when we found that moment as we were cutting, it just felt so so thrilling because it says so much about her as a character. You know, she she doesn't ever just give up. It's almost like it's not in her DNA to do it. She doesn't know how. And so this is a moment that is one of two scenes in which the character looks in the mirror and takes stock and... Um, probably doesn't love what she's seeing, doesn't love what's looking back at her. And and there's a enraged quality to her response. But um, we, we later see a, a scene in the past where she gives herself a hard look in the mirror. And I do think that's a, a bit of a narrative metaphor for the whole movie. What does it mean? What are the consequences of looking deeply at yourself? All right. I am told by people that this scene is satisfying for them on a bunch of levels. And I do think there's something about watching, watching a woman take something back for herself that is um, thrilling and pleasurable and probably also a little bit uncomfortable. But I love that about this scene. I think violence has a price in this film. I think there's blood, there's scars, there's damage. And yet, as moviegoers, I think we are drawn to this idea of a kind of cinematic lashing out. And this is one of those moments where we see the character lash out. And for some of us, it's really satisfying. It's really satisfying to see, like, to me, how her hands are somewhat shaking with the gun in her hand because she's so adrenalized and so nervous and, and yet so in command of her rage. And that's a scary thing to be in the presence of. This scene turned out really well, I felt, like in terms of communicating 
how strange this character is, how unpredictable, how hair trigger she 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 is. And um her danger, I think, becomes more apparent in this scene. It's sort of like balance shifts a little bit here. And we understand that while her co-workers may not appreciate her, there is something formidable about her. Coming up is a scene here where we shot it in perhaps a more conventional way than it was on the page. It had always been clear on the page that the scene needed to take on this dreamlike logic. And we were on a real location out in the desert. Weirdly, it couldn't have been louder out there. I, it was so strange the way we would hear traffic and motorcycles. And it was just really odd. Trains deep, deep in the background were very present and loud. And so we suddenly felt kind of hobbled by some of this footage not having the surreality that we were hoping for. And as Plummy Tucker, my editor, and I were grappling with the scene, Plummy suggested the idea of playing with an interior voiceover and sync sound so that we can feel the dreamlike voice that might be in Aaron Bell's head and watch a character in what appears to be real time and space speaking to her. I think it's a pretty effective method. Once we found it and once we distilled it to what we wanted it to be, the hope was that we don't quite know if that scene is even happening or if it actually happened, but that Aaron believes it's happened. This was a scene I get asked about all the time. Did I want the ant to be walking through the frame? And the answer is yes, we had an ant wrangler. There were literally two people sitting off to the side of that shot trying to coax, coax that ant, that difficult ant, over to their side of the room. But she was being a diva, I suppose. But I just wanted an ant because I thought it was interesting to see a person who feels so small and insignificant waking up to a creature even smaller and one could argue the same significance. This is a scene that we shot in a real hospital in Burbank and it's just meant to be the the real life ratcheting up of a teenager's, um, I want to say the perilousness of a teenager's life when they're at this age, when they're 16, they're running a little fast with a fast crowd. And suddenly Erin has to confront the possibility that her daughter is living a little bit out of her element and is looking to get into bigger trouble than she's already in. Where do you think this ends up, Shelby? This was a, a moment that in the script... I, I just loved on paper, and I, <laughs> I just love it now. The irrationality of Aaron Bell screaming out, no one is fucking accountable, which in the world of the film is, is, is true, but the irony, particularly on second viewing, is watching it and understanding that she's really speaking to herself. 
And it helped to me to just clarify what I think is, um, or just give us a little bit of a nudge toward what I think is the real thematic concern of the film, which is what does it mean to be morally accountable? What does it mean to be personally responsible to yourself and to the mistakes you've made, the choices you've made? We see one of those choices right now in that she's been avoiding her partner and now she finds Antonio waiting for her, wondering where she's been all this time. And one gets the sense that she's a little bit out of control, but she's still senior to him and can barely get away with saying, just leave me alone while I'm on this quest on my, on my own. But that his, uh, his patience is extremely limited to, to give her much more rope. In a funny way, he's the one that ends up with some of the most crucial information of the film. And I loved the idea of, in this shot, kind of leaving him in a maze because he doesn't know it yet, but he needs to find his way out of that maze to understand the, the, the consequences of her choices um, later in the film. Uh, we shot this part actually in Griffith Park at the merry-go-round as it was scripted. And and this is the introduction of the present-day Petra, played so wonderfully by Tatiana Maslany. And this, again, is meant to be a bit of a study of what time can do to us depending on the choices we make and the lives we lead. Because this woman that we're looking at who's talking to herself and lashing out at strangers and feeling a sense of being put upon completely irrationally is quite a bit different than, than the reckless cowboy girl that we see in the back of a truck kissing a rifle. And so... And yet, of course, they're inevitably linked. And so this is the beginning of a sequence that I think makes up what I would call sort of one of the biggest set pieces of the film, where she starts to follow Petra and hope to hope that that she can get more information about the remains of this gang and eventually Silas. As we were cutting the film, I would say this was one of the bigger challenges, was managing the sense of quest and odyssey across L.A. with the um, just the real experience of watching a movie. Like how much basically can the audience tolerate before they lose interest or lose engagement? But how do we maintain that connection to this idea that when she drives somewhere, it takes some time because this is Los Angeles and nothing is two minutes away. So it was an interesting challenge throughout the film to, to balance those, those things. This is one of those frames that was kind of an ode to Gordon Willis, a DP that uh, Julie Kirkwood and I are both uh, pretty obsessed by. And just the hardcore silhouette. 
it spoke to who Aaron really was in the present day, this living mystery. And I loved the idea that it opened us up into the past and into this moment that becomes a real tipping point for Aaron in, in, in the flashbacks in which she overhears Silas and Petra 17 years ago planning something. It sounds like there's a lot of money at stake. And there's even a mention of Petra's dad's friend, which I believe we've always thought was Dennis DeFranco, who we've just seen in, in the scene with Bradley Whitford. So this is an opportunity to sort of start putting pieces of the puzzle together and also see that Chris is doing his job almost too well. You know, he's using now, he's having a little too much fun, and yet there's something momentous between him and Aaron right now. There is a sense that something is going on. And I loved this daylight hanging out quality. Like, I thought there's something really... Um, even more depressing to me about nighttime, the idea of a bunch of people just hanging out and doing drugs and listening to music and it's just eternal sunshine. That just seems, there's a, there's a different kind of darkness to that, I suppose. And this is a moment where we reveal that they are now in some shape or form a couple. And it was an interesting experience when we were cutting it because I think there were a lot of people who who expressed the desire for more information but the point is is that we we need to have the question hanging in the air about how much of this relationship is real how much of it can um, how much of it is a function of being undercover all of that kind of stuff and so it was something we played with how much of it we would really see or explain and now we're back into the present day pursuit of Petra. And the way this scene was constructed was that it was always meant to be a bit a bit from Aaron's perspective in that she really, she's just following them. She doesn't have a sense of what's on the other side. This is where we, on a score level, we introduce this guitar blast that I think kind of helped ratchet up the sense of tension or surprise alongside this um, these these sort of more momentous chords that we've been playing with throughout throughout the the score and building on and of course also building on this idea of just being no matter where you're going, you're still sitting in traffic at certain points um, as you're driving through L.A. And um, this was an actual old bank close to the airport, and it became the ideal setting for us to be for us to be shooting this sequence. It's meant to have, I think, the sense of truly not knowing what's going to happen next, and. What I loved about it on the page was that the thing I hadn't anticipated was the idea that she was following Petra and would kind of hit the jackpot quite as deeply as she does here. When these guys jump out of the van and she realizes that what she's 
watching is a bank robbery in progress and that it's being spearheaded by Silas, the person she's been hunting for. It has that kind of dreamlike quality of, um, uh, you know, a kind of almost surreality to it. And um, I loved what the music was doing here to sort of give us a sense of like uh, the butterflies in the stomach almost for Aaron. And this is one of my favorite movies, mo mo moments of the movie coming up right now where she just starts charging away from her car and then remembers she has another weapon in the trunk. Like that there's this sense of her mania to get this guy that she forgets she could be arming herself a little more effectively. And this, by the way, is like what an LA cop has in the back of their trunk. It's not, it's not remarkable. So just seeing her go back and then suddenly come out with this weapon, it, um, it's both bracing on a movie level, but also kind of terrifying to think this is how real life works. I loved this building because it had such great shapes with these arches and had a really nice interior lobby here. And what I liked about this whole scene was that I felt like it gave us the opportunity to just see something in a way that felt real. It just felt authentic. It didn't feel um, too heightened. It felt chaotic and... Um, it, it just felt sort of like this is maybe how messed up and, and frantic this would feel if you were really in this situation. And, and I would say that was a big mission of the script, was to evoke real life and evoke something bigger and more almost mythological. And, and this is an example where the music helps with that latter that latter instinct, you know, it's sort of raising, raising the stakes of this scene to something closer to, to myth, and um, and then lines like this upcoming one, this is a fucking gunfight, which just helps us understand the bluntness of this woman's quest. What was really interesting when we shot this scene over the course of more than a few days was just um, how fast everything happens. You know, no one can move in slow motion. It's um, it's frantic. There's something kind of just almost, it's moving too fast to really recognize how awful it is. And so it made me think a lot about war films and just how in these moments there's a sense of just trying to get out and survive and we were really lucky to be in a, a space here where we were shooting that just had some height that had a really amazing ceiling that had a lot of wood which created some nice warmth we looked at a lot of locations that were just way too small and so we finally found something that just had drama to it and, and, and heft and created enough distance between characters that you could sort of see people really having to um, put themselves in danger just to get to the exit. 
This was a hard sequence to shoot, possibly one of our most challenging. A lot of people on the crew, including at times our camera operators, also um, Nicole had the flu. <laughs> so everybody was going down while we were shooting this particular scene. And then for Nicole to get sick was just like, oh my God, how are we gonna do this? Um, miraculously, we pulled it off. I think every single setup ends up in this sequence, like nothing went to waste. But it was, um, it really felt like we had, you know, a boot on our neck while we were shooting. It was like not a relaxed uh, week of, of shooting at all. It actually added a bit to the intensity of the scene or to the, the, the feverish quality of Aaron Bell and all the other characters. There was a sense of just having to move at a very fast clip and, and work at a really high level that I think actually benefited the sequence. We were really lucky because something that I knew Phil and Matt really took seriously was the idea that all of these off-screen voices that come through the police dispatch radio and all of the all of the banter around just living in law enforcement be be real and sound real and we had some really great background voice artists who came in and just made everything feel urgent and scary and real. And it was just another moment of, for me as a director, being moved by how much every single person brings to making a movie and how those voices added so much texture and so much authenticity and how much I appreciate them. This scene was really hard to shoot as well we often had Nicole and Tatiana uh, fighting here, and um, it was important that we see their faces at certain points and really understand the degree to which they are hurting each other. And so, this is this is a this is the fight that essentially kills Aaron Bell. It's it's just one step too far, and she can't survive it in the end. And so, it was important that it take on a a brutality that it might fly by, but again, on second viewing, you have to watch it and say, I understand the severity of what's happened to this character, especially. This throwaway line is one of my favorites <laughs> and everyone's reaction to it. I'm a cop and everyone's terrified reaction of that line. And this was a scene that had this kind of strange magic between these two actors. You know, so much intensity between them, a sense of history between them, and then a wildness, a complete unpredictability. And the idea that sirens are closing in and she just throws this woman in the trunk and then this woman starts laughing hysterically was one of the destabilizing elements of the script that just felt so exciting. Like this is a world upside down and Aaron is just in the middle of all of it. Here's another example for me of Nicole's brilliance. 
and that she just um, she just performs aggrieved and then slips out of it in an instant. And the idea that um, she's just gotten as a character too used to lying that perhaps it's blurred for her truth truth and the lie she can't tell the difference anymore and so a big part of the film is her kind of coming to the truth as difficult as that ends up being for her as risky as it is for her this was one of these scenes that again we had to depend on really great second unit days capturing this drive and this sense of odyssey across all of L.A. from the airport to the east side, which, as many of us who live in L.A. know, can sometimes be a challenging trial. Um, but I love, I loved the mystery of this shot of her in the, in the, in the rear view and the side view mirror and just the sense of um, what is this woman doing? Where is she coming from? Why does she have a witness in the trunk of her car? None of it makes sense. And so to me, again, this is just another piece of the puzzle being laid out into what becomes an ever-expanding puzzle. And that was something I loved about the script from the beginning, the sense that we think we know what the mystery is and then we haven't even gotten really sort of to scratching the surface. This was a scene that came late in our schedule and was probably the last scene of the present day material. And it really required that Tatiana and Nicole express this effortless history between them, what you might even say like a curdled friendship but then also understand that they're genuine adversaries, seeing as how Petra is chained to this table, you know, handcuffed to this side table here. And so it's a complicated scene. I think probably in the original director's, like, first pass of, of the film, when I had a lot, I had done a lot less refining of the scenes, this scene was a lot, lot longer because it had so many interesting story threads going through it and so many suggestions of relationships from the past that that couldn't end up in the finished film because it almost like brought up too many questions, too many new elements. So in some ways, I think this is the most distilled version of the scene that gets us to Petra and her relationship with Silas and how that's become stale for both of them a bad habit, clearly, for both of them, and something that Petra's willing to finally sacrifice and and say goodbye to in order to not necessarily save herself, but at least liberate herself from, from Silas's grip. It's really meant to be a scene that has some internal emotional twists and turns. And it was hard to shoot. They they move around a lot. They decided each to be incredibly adventurous as actors, and they handled the physicality of the scene differently, take to take. So at a certain point, I needed to um, sort of choose a path with the footage that I had. 
And it's pretty fascinating to look at all the dailies of a scene like this and really see that with these two actors particularly, they are working at such a high level that they can make one specific choice really work and they can make a completely different choice really work. And that's um, that's just a joy to behold. It's hard to cut, but it's a joy to behold because um, it, it, it meant that I was always just working with, um, I want to just say, genius in the room. Yeah. And the two of them, I think, didn't need very long to size each other up as actors. I think they both were pretty quickly hooked into how much uh, skill and talent and um, soulfulness the other was bringing to the table. It was a real moving experience in a way to watch these two actors face off in the same room. I'll see you. There's something about this scene that reveals how broken Petra is and how she is sort of like the more extreme mirror to Aaron Bell. And there's the suggestion that Aaron always wanted what Petra and Silas and Toby and Arturo wanted, which was just plain and simple money. And we hear this and we don't quite, we don't necessarily quite know how it impacts the story. And and what I love about the script is that we're we're primed for this notion about her her Aaron's duplicity, her ability to potentially be a criminal like like they were in her heart. And then we travel into this flashback that reveals something quite momentous in the story, which is that Silas finally lets Chris in on the plan, and we find out that there's potentially seven to ten million dollars at stake. And now Chris and Bell have to make a decision. They have to figure out when to extract themselves from, from this job. But what I think is so tantalizing about the character and the story is that the thing we've always felt about Aaron Bell or suspected or wondered becomes brutally clear here, I think. And it's like the story gets pushed off a ledge in a great way when she asks this question. What if we don't? What if we don't go by the letter of the law? What if we participate in this crime and just try to get away with it, which is what criminals want to do. <laughs> they want to get away with their crimes. And who, who among us has been, you know, guilty of that, probably many of us. We just want to have a transgressive moment and get away with it and walk away with no consequence. But the fact is the movie is, I think, trying to uncover the impossibility of that wish. Because from this point forward, we're now watching Aaron really grappling with how much suffering she has brought upon herself with this disastrous decision. And we understand that she even told Ethan the truth, and he was even willing to 
accept something about her despite this transgression. But I, I think in the way that they are a couple, she, that she, she just can't bear the exposure. And so she leaves him. And in this moment, she's now saying, I want you to have the money that I stole. And I just think that's such, I, I don't know when I've seen that scene in a movie between a woman and a man, particularly when it's the woman who's saying, I want you to take the money I stole. I just think it's so loaded and so um, complicated and different and unique. And this was one of those scenes where it was important that we understand it's, it's enough money to make a dent, but also the kind of amount of money that 17 years later, maybe um, you would really have to ask yourself, why? What, was that possibly worth it? And I think that's the question Erin is asking herself, and I want the audience to be there right with, with her, asking this question about this grave mistake that she makes. This was one of those scenes where, like, you need to feel that Ethan is ultimately a good guy, ultimately a person who, while he needs the money too, and he admits it, if Shelby were to end up with him, that would be a safe landing pad. And... I think there's something kind of lonely about this whole scene, seeing how estranged they are and embittered they are, and that there could have been a different relationship there. There could have been love and tenderness, and I'm sure there were moments of it between them, but it's now just all in the past. And in some ways, perhaps we're seeing Ethan move on finally in that scene. And this was one of these scenes that we added, I would say, probably later Phil and Matt added that scene of her taking the pills and us feeling the depth of her wounds starting to affect her physicality before we moved into this flashback. And to me, there's something about this moment that is a sort of centerpiece emotionally of the movie. The momentousness of taking a pregnancy test, not knowing what to expect, probably assuming that she's not pregnant, but finding out that she's pregnant anyway. And the shock of it, the um, almost the sense that you've been hit by lightning. I, I feel like so many women have gone through this moment where they've discovered that they're pregnant and whether they've wanted that or not, it is such, such a big deal, and it's just not treated in a very dimensional way in movies, I would say. Um, we often see what it means to, to want to have a kid and then become pregnant, but there's something about the uncertainty here, the, the, this look on her face, this sense of terror, of joy, of regret— but really terror. It's like her life has been turned upside down in this scene. And I just feel 
I'm just so glad we could have shot it and so glad that the script had a moment where we see a character have to face this life-changing event. And on a story level, what's really interesting is we realize that it's Chris's baby, not Ethan's. And that, I think, adds yet another piece of an ever-expanding puzzle to the world of this woman. And on that tip, here we are in this scene where she's going to her storage unit and finding that the money she stole is largely ruined and that a dye pack unwittingly was in that bag and went off late. This is a scene that we really wanted to thread a needle of um, giving enough information that the audience could come to a reasonable conclusion about how it had happened without over-explaining how it had happened. It's interesting. It's, it's a challenge to tell stories this way because you run the risk of confusing people or losing people, but at least you're sort of staying tethered to an emotional state as opposed to just um, trying to explain something. And so I struggle probably with what I could have done differently here to tell this part of the story. But ultimately, I think what we see is that she takes the remaining mon money that's left, and um, that leads us into this scene with Jay. This was one of those shots where she's coming up over the, that bridge that evoked all of those great Gordon Willis films shot by Gordon Willis, um, particularly the Parallax View or or Clute, where there's just a really graphic framing of a character in space and where the graphicness of the framing almost um, dwarfs a character. And we see that there's sort of larger powers or larger forces around a character. I felt like that was really common in some of those 70s films that I referenced earlier. And we were definitely, Julie and I, trying to... Um, trying to evoke that in this film. This was a, one of these outdoor locations. Every single, every single scene of the film is at a real location. And so I would say some of the sound in this particular scene was like, it was like an alien invasion might have been happening in the background on a sound level. We were just like, why is it so noisy? There was just no way to really filter it out. And so it's an incredibly noisy film in the finished, in a noisy scene in the finished film. But um, I think it gives it some life that it just feel a little bit rough and a, a little bit sort of um, exposed somehow. Uh, on a sound level. I would probably ask for something different if I could have had it, but I just loved this particular location. It was downtown. It was where a lot of like lawyers and clerks were taking their lunch break. And then there was like all these skateboarders and there were quite a few homeless people living in this particular area. And so it just had the the texture, again, of real life, and um, all of that seemed worth it to me. Fine. 
I really like this scene because Bo Knapp brings this strange vulnerability to this moment. And it's like he knows one or two things about Shelby and he and one of those things is is how deeply anguished she is about her mom. And he attempts to use it against Belle here, but doesn't quite succeed. And watching the film now, it's like, to me, this bridge shot is kind of like the bridge into the last act of the movie. And we watch now what becomes an extended flashback sequence into the past where the the plotting of the crime in the past becomes much clearer, the sense of the performance of what will be their story, their, their narrative to the crime, combined with the crime itself. And um, on the page, it was a fairly complex and... Um, demanding sequence in that it was flashbacks within flashbacks, essentially, or flash forwards and flashbacks, kind of all working together. It was a difficult sequence to put together. I'm, I'm really thankful that we had so much music, actually, to work with um, early on so that we could start feeling this conspiratorial build between the two characters as well as see the crime build uh, simultaneously. And so in this, this was a case where some of those early exploratory uh, recording sessions that I had done with Teddy Shapiro right after he had gotten a script and, and before I had even started officially prepping, he was writing some of this music. And so to have this stuff that was um, a bit more fractured and snaky. It actually helped pull the sequence together in the cutting room a lot earlier than it would have been, I think, if we didn't have that music. That's another collaboration that I'm just so thankful to have. I feel like Teddy and I and Plummy and I and Phil and Matt and I have been able to work as this unit on the past couple of films and it it makes a fast cutting schedule remotely possible because we can be in a pretty aligned creative space really early I loved this desert location this was um, a Masonic lodge that we turned into a bank. And um, there's just something about the the white-on-white vibe of it that felt very, very desert. And it, it, it had a, a kind of evocative blandness that I really appreciated. Wait till it all quiets down and then we quit. This is probably the, the most stylistically, I would say, extreme departure that the film takes in that once we see the bank robbery itself, 
it's told in a combination of footage from surveillance cameras and um, a, a heightened color photography that is very different than the way the rest of the film has been shot. It's it's sort of meant to feel like um, memory or a combination of the stuff you would piece together from actual surveillance versus one's memory of how it might have happened. So, for instance, these shots, which were all slow-mo, are meant to have the expressive quality of what Aaron Bell might have imagined had happened from piecing it together from the surveillance footage. And and I was hoping that we could sense this connection between Chris and Bell, the sense of um, almost a kind of psychic bond between them. But in the end, she's outside of the bank and he's inside the bank and what happens from this point forward is, you know, sort of the tragedy that marks Belle's life. She's asked Chris to participate in this bank robbery. He never expected to have to go into the bank. That was exactly one of the mistakes, one of the things going wrong that they could have deflected or done something differently there, but they chose not to. And so when they all run out and there's this moment of hopefulness on Belle's face and a sense like, ah, she's going to get away with it, it all gets interrupted by this. And from this point forward is sort of the, um, the I want to say the end of the life from that flashback, Aaron Bell as we know her, and the beginning of what becomes Aaron Bell in the present, this this um, toxifying in her because she's going to watch the one person she loves ever perhaps in her life run, run back into that bank and most certainly to his death. And uh, she's not wrong to feel responsible. Why is he going back in? What was amazing to me about shooting this sequence was how much Nicole committed to the terror of not being inside the bank, but that sense of waiting, the sense of dread. And this might be probably the only time we really see something happen that, that Aaron doesn't have access to in this same way with what would become the one exception, which is this shot, a, a surveillance a surveillance scene that she surely would have seen after the fact. That anticipation on her face when we were shooting it, she just did such a good job. She made it seem so effortless to, to be waiting for him to come out of this bank and to recognize that it's not going to happen. And to sort of feel her life fall off a cliff like that. Um, it, it was just really another moment where I just felt like I'm really so blessed to be working with an actor who can just commit to a reality so effortlessly, you know? Um, it's 
it's interesting when you watch an actor make it look easy. Can't it can't be easy what she she's done and what a lot of these actors have done throughout the film. They just have given a hundred and ten percent, and so was such a was just such a great experience to be working with people who invested so much of their hearts and minds into these characters. This scene in particular where she takes a wrong turn and crashes this van, the willfulness of it is such an incredible example of her character that she's literally going to crash her van into a dumpster to stop it. And it, it there's just an insanity to it that's so both insane and real. I guess that's something I really appreciate about her. This scene, when we were shooting it, there was just this aliveness, this vibrancy to what Nicole was doing. It was like she was just so electrified by this um, greed. The fact that she's like holding that duffel of money like it's almost like a baby was just the kind of choice she would make that helped just help bring us closer to the, to the character. I mean, she's doing something so transgressive here right now. She knows that Chris is dead or most likely is. And then this whole moment where it's like her body starts shivering and it's like she goes into shock and it all crashes down around her. There was something about shooting this that was um, just incredibly moving because she she wails in this way that for everyone around this scene, you know, for the whole crew, there was something spine tingling about it, legitimately like painfully truthful. It was almost like it was too real what was happening with this actor and this character. And it was just a great example of how they often melded before our very eyes. Because this is the this is the mistake that haunts her for the rest of her life. And I think Nicole did such a beautiful job of illustrating how that happened, you know. And I think it's a real it's a real gift for me to watch a movie where I feel like somebody gets me closer to the way we think, the way we behave, the way we make decisions and the way we take ownership of those decisions. And so it was really um, gratifying to just watch an actor be able to draw that map for the audience. Poking around, looking for a good memory from when I was a kid. This was, obviously, it's a huge scene in the film. It's um, probably the emotional crux of the movie. And we see this confrontation between Shelby and Aaron that that's just meant to feel like the first real conversation they've probably had in 10 years which is a long time to wait for getting something real from your parent. And I hope that we feel at this point like we understand how how Aaron has pushed this girl away, probably because every time she looks at Shelby, she's seeing Chris. There is something 
interesting about knowing that about her now, understanding that that Shelby's dad is Chris. And it's the thing that keeps Chris alive for Aaron and the thing that reminds her of her own complicity in his absence. And so my hope is that this is a scene that kind of expands as you're watching it in in meaning and in feeling and and isn't entirely easy to read. I like those kind of movies. I like those kind of scenes, sometimes to my own peril, but I just like it when there's um, some some journey toward the meaning, you know, some traveling to get to the meaning, which is something that I love about this movie overall, that it 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 doesn't um doesn't tell you what it's supposed to be about and then and then just execute on that. It actually offers up a lot of um, questions and a lot of mystery and I hope starts to hone hone a journey for the audience toward toward some of those conclusions. But it's definitely not meant to answer every question for the audience. And this is a scene that to me is quite mysterious. It has basic properties that are satisfying. We want to see Aaron be tender with her child finally and admit wrongdoing. And the fact that she does it, I think, is really extraordinary. But she also has to continue on her quest. And there's something about watching Aaron walk away from her daughter that's really painful in this scene. It's dark and cold. And you know, I, um, I love the idea that Shelby is telling a story in the same way that Aaron has been trying to tell herself a story of her memory of something. And this idea that memory itself is kind of a story that when we tell it aloud, we have to ask, was that even true? Did that even happen? as Shelby does. Did you take me out into the snow wearing sneakers and did we get lost overnight while we were trying to camp? And is that real? Did that happen? I think there's something so um, so moving because what Shelby's really recounting is that this is the, the good memory she carries with her. Being protected by her mother but then also having to ask, why is her mother so reckless? Why does she put her in that situation to begin with? And when we see the evocation of this memory at the end of the film, I think it brings up those questions again, the why. But I think that's sort of what the audience is being asked to grapple with. And in some respects, the movie, I hope, is saying is something we have to answer together. I'm not sure if the, the movie can answer it entirely. And so this scene and the way it links up to the very end of the film um, and to that last scene in the snow is mysterious to me. And And as a side note, something I find so moving is that 
Shelby's always known that her dad was this guy she's never met, Chris, who her mom used to work with. But in the end, what she knows and what she experiences and what she's asserted for herself is that Ethan is her father. And that's so true for her. And so to just see a kid tell the truth like that, like, I don't even know that guy, so don't call him my dad. I just feel like there's something so um, refreshing about it, you know. She's not just a petulant teenager. She's somebody who's made some decisions about the reality she wants to keep close. And um, it's, it's a, to me, a really interesting depict, depiction of a 16-year-old girl. And the look on her face as Aaron is saying, I'm the one who's bad, it's not you. The fact that a kid often is just waiting all their life to hear that from somebody, just even to be seen, I don't know, this scene felt very elemental to me and like it almost had this kind of like campfire magic to me because this is like one of these basic stories that I think actually has the quality of being what will become this incredibly memorable moment for Shelby. Like she'll never forget sitting in this diner with this woman and that this was the last thing her mother said to her, which is, I do love you. You know, I think that's really powerful. Like I hope, I hope if any audience is willing to watch the movie a second time, they understand the or they, they feel some of the gravity of this scene and the hope, I hope, because there is hope in this scene that finally Belle has given something to her daughter that her daughter can carry with her, which is love. It's so simple. This moment when she walks across the street and the music starts to take a shift towards something that's going to build throughout the film um, into the ending of the film, which is a grander, more emotional, more openly beautiful style of music. Because we've seen Belle at least now be accountable to her daughter. I think we've earned this sense of musical flight that, that is coming from, from Teddy's score. It's probably one of the most um, complex scores I've ever had the opportunity to work with um, from Teddy. And it's, uh, God, it's just such a beauty. I just, um, I'm, so, I'm so thankful for what he did f for this film. And this whole scene takes on, to me, this kind of like driving into Hades kind of quality. And, and that's what we had hoped, that night would take on this like velvet quality, but also be a descent for the character. And so I guess this is sort of like the, the final movement toward this descent for Aaron and I've always wondered when people watch the movie for the first time when it, 
when they catch up to what might be happening in it. And like, for instance, as we're intercutting here between the past and the present, are they recognizing that this is the same walk she's made at the beginning of the film, that we've seen this architecture before, except we've seen it during the day, not at night? Are we recognizing that? Um, I'm, I'm surprised to learn how many people don't connect it and don't even connect it right now that she is confronting the object of her hunt throughout the film. And now Silas stands before her. And we are going back to scenes we've seen previously that might start to build for the audience that the criminal we've been following in this film hasn't been Silas. It's been Belle. That she is essentially, you know, as Phil and Matt had always said, a detective investigating herself. And now we see that come for full circle. We see that the chronology of the film is not what we expected. And that in, in so many respects, on an emotional level, on a psychological level, we felt like Aaron Bell is the, the instigator of all of her troubles. But now we really see as she's sitting back at this dead body we recognize that she is truly the truly the the criminal she's been hunting for i hope it feels complex i've never imagined that there was a sense of satisfaction ultimately that she kills kills silas my hope was always that it took on another kind of gravity a different kind of depth because we've been watching this character hunt down and plot a murder as opposed to investigate one. And there's something quite radical to me about that idea, not just on a structural level, but on a moral level. And I think the hope for me was that the audience has to ask themselves questions just even about like the institutions of movies and linear storytelling and all of the assumptions we make about heroes and good guys and bad guys, that they're often not that simple. They're not that black and white. And so as we catch up to the meaning of the movie in this moment when she's essentially giving information to Antonio that will turn herself in and kind of put the final pieces of the puzzle together for him... My hope is that the audience sees that while she is the criminal in question, she is also attempting to come clean. She is attempting to expose herself, which is the one thing we've never seen her do. Some of that most fundamental exposure is the fact that she's dying and has been dying throughout 
much of the film and has known it and not done anything about it. And there's something about that I think that's also quite startling to recognize that in some ways the mistake that she made 17 years ago and the guilt that she has suffered and the shame that she has lived with has just been eating her alive. And perhaps in the world of this movie, you know, the thing worse than death is to have gotten away with it. And so she ensures that she won't get away with it. And that to me is, is incredibly meaningful. I think we're in a time where we need to be watching people take responsibility for their mistakes and just say the words out loud, I made a mistake and I'm sorry. It's like, I think we live in this time when it almost seems impossible to see people in power do that. And I so desperately want that, that I kind of felt driven to make a movie like this that goes to this length to investigate what it would mean to just be responsible to oneself and be open and accountable to one's mistakes. Please. This moment here is so complex because this is the moment that she convinces a person she loves to go through with this catastrophic choice. And love is the driver and the reason and in her mind, the justification and sort of outside of that, I think some of us in the audience can say that is so manipulative, that is so unwittingly disastrous that you're going to use love to pull this guy in. And, and so in some ways, you know, on a structural level, the people among my tribe of film lovers who are really into film noir, they've pointed out that you know, throughout the film, she's occupied this space as both the detective and the femme fatale. And so this is the moment that we really understand that she has ensnared, ensnared someone in, in a plot that will inevitably lead to their doom, which is this, you know, very um, strong tradition in film noir, almost a, a requirement. But the fact that she occupies both spaces is really interesting to me. It's, an, it's a notion I hadn't considered before, but I've thought about since, since um, some friends have brought it up. And so I look at the film a little bit differently now. And I think about how part of what the movie is exploring is this idea of occupying a lot of space, a lot of different kinds of space that Aaron is telling someone what she really wants and needs. And, and we want to see her do that. As a character, it's important to see her do that. But it's also, in this case, this tragic mistake that she finally asks for what she wants. And what she wants is such a mistake. And the fact is, we see through the film that she doesn't even get the thing she thought she was asking for. And she loses everything. In, 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 in making this choice. And so it's complicated. It's like, this isn't, this isn't like um, a classic or easy empowerment narrative. This is 
a story about a woman who's paid a very heavy price for the decisions she's made. But over the course of the film, we've watched her and we've communed with her. We've, I hope, engaged with her. We've debated with her in our minds as we've watched her. And I hope we've gotten closer to her. And to me, that's what I want from storytelling. I don't necessarily want to see big, huge, radical shifts of character. I just want to see something real happen that feels like life refracted back to me with some grace. And I hope that that's what this film has been doing. And I hope that that's what these last moments are doing, is connecting the audience to who Erin is in her last moments. And she shares that memory with Shelby of trudging through the snow and her jeans getting wet and her sneakers falling apart and walking uphill with a kid on her back. But there's this indomitable strength to this character that hurdles her forward that we have to, even after all this, admire. We have to grapple with, you know, this woman exists. She existed. And so I guess I don't see this ending as tragic so much as transformative. We've seen all the stages that this character can go through in these particular time periods. We've seen how much complexity there is to her and the fact that she does attempt to do the right thing, certainly by her daughter, and tell her partner who she really is in this sort of unfolding murder mystery to me says that she's gotten one thing right. And that's what I hope that last shot would evoke is the sense of watching somebody try something and fail and try something and fail and finally just maybe once get it right. I've been asked about the title a lot and um, something I love about it is that it has a lot of meanings for me and, and for all of us who created the film. It, it refers to power, it refers to money, it refers to greed, refers to memory. And for me it probably most evokes the specter of time and the idea that, that, that time continues uh, no matter how long we do, time keeps marching forward. And so there is a inexorable power to, to that. And, um, but I hope that we, over the course of the film, can see a lot of different destroyers in the movie and come to our, our own conclusion about uh, what we think the title means. Thank you so much for listening to this commentary. And um, I really appreciate it. It's intense to talk about the film like this. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs>